Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hour 2 here at Mornings with Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen LeBurge, who's away on a speaking engagement in rainy Houston, Texas. And we were texting the two of us yesterday a little bit. Haven't heard anything about how the weather might be stopping the speaking engagement, but I'm curious about how she's being impacted by what seems to be right around four feet of rain in 24 hours. So I didn't see this one coming. I didn't hear anything about a hurricane. So I'm curious from a tropical depression standpoint, Paul Perot, it sounds like there's, I mean, it's still significant weather. Yeah, they're still getting more rain today. And I did notice, uh, checking the news, you're right, 43 inches in Jefferson County, yeah. which is near Houston. Or I, I don't know if Houston's in that, whatever county it is, but in that area, I mean, torrential rain. Torrential rain, yeah. Well, we had a great first hour of the show. If you missed it, please uh, head to MyFaithRadio.com. You can catch some conversations on some of the difficult topics in our culture and how we've increasingly become really polarized in that and, and so many of the changing values we've experienced over the last 15, 20 years. And who better than Adam Holtz from PluggedIn.com to be able to talk about changes of values as well over uh, what he sees in media and movies. He joins us every Friday here on Mornings with Carmen to talk about that. Good morning, Adam. Good morning, Peter. Always glad to be on with you. Yeah, we were talking during the break, you and I and and Paul a bit, about just even the idea that a TV show like Friends in 1994 was absolutely scandalous in terms of what it said and the script writing and what they mentioned and how different even things are some 25 years later. Yeah, you know, things have really changed. And and like so many things, and and in a similar way, you know, I remember sort of the the moral panics of, of the 80s, like over ACDC or something like that, or Ozzy Osbourne. And, and now it all seems like a little golden book compared to some of the stuff that's out today. I mean, it's it's hard to imagine how much we were really concerned about those things. But I think it, it's sort of a frog in a kettle kind of thing. It's it not is. that it's, you know, we woke up and realized that those things weren't problematic. It's that the culture has shifted so much that now what was once really problematic, you know, doesn't seem like that big a deal anymore. Well, and you said something so interesting in the break that I, that I didn't think about, but uh, some of the script writing of Friends, that if you brought that out in 2019 right now, it would immediately uh, be silenced by certain segments of the population because it would be considered homophobic. Right. I mean, I think that even through the 1990s, there was sort of a working assumption that um, – that homosexuality was still not the norm. And so it was still uh, fodder for all kinds of jokes. And if you go back further into the 80s, man, some of the stuff back then is unbelievable now. I mean, in terms of comparing our cultural sensitivity to that issue. So uh, it's it's funny how things age or don't age culturally. Uh, And here's another weird observation I would make about friends. Occasionally, after we get the kids to bed, we'll turn that on. Right. So you can totally judge me on that right now. <laughs> uh, and normally, it's not something I would turn on. Now I'm going to distance myself, so just work with me. Uh, but my wife likes it. So <laughs> right, right. I'm like, all right. Throw her under the okay. bus. Way yeah, to go, exactly. Adam. Yeah, exactly. no, I know. I, but we were watching it last night, and it was like a special Thanksgiving episode. 
and they all had eaten dinner and they were all six of them were sitting on the floor because they were too full to move. They were just sitting on the floor talking. And I thought to myself, wow. I mean, in a positive way, I think the reason the show still has resonance and people still watch it on Netflix is because we see people in real relationship with each other. Now, certainly it's over ridiculous things, so I don't want to overstate it, but now we wouldn't, not only would we not sit on the floor and just sit there, you know, we'd all be in different rooms with our, with our cell phones, checking our Facebook feeds. And, you know, Jennifer Aniston said a while back, the main reason there could never be a friends reboot was because if you walked into a coffee shop now, everybody would be on their phones. And so not only have the values changed, but the technology has changed the very way that we relate to each other. Uh, and even the way we related 20 years ago looks totally different now. Yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. It's hard to know for sure how historians will write about and judge this time in history. But I have to believe that at the top of the list is how deeply technology has shifted the way that we do our lives together. Well, that's the voice of Adam Holtz from PluggedIn.com. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back in just a minute or so, we've got a few movies to run down, including Rambo, Last Blood, The Return of Brad Pitt, and Ad Astra. And then, Brad, uh, Adam, in, in light of your Friends episodes, I can neither confirm nor deny if I've watched all of the seasons of Downton Abbey, but there's a movie that's out on that, and I want to get your perspective on that next year on Mornings <laughs> with Carmen. <laughs> Welcome back. It's about 10 minutes past the top of the hour. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen LeBurge this morning and already enjoying a conversation with Adam Holtz of Plugged In, PluggedIn.com. It is a place that I go regularly to see just some good insight into what we might be experiencing or anticipating as we go to movies or watch some streaming shows on places like Netflix, uh, etc. And so, Adam, I was a little surprised. I didn't know anything about a new Rambo movie coming out. I have no idea how <laughs> Sylvester Stallone, how old he must be. I think the one I remember was maybe the second one. Did he go to some place in South Southeast Asia or something to free some some captives. That's all I really remember. Yeah. And I remember in three, he gets a hole blown in his torso. And at one point (laughs) you can actually, and it like gets cauterized and there's a hole in his, in his abdomen that you can see through, you can see daylight on the other side. And (laughs) I still remember my best friend and I seeing that way back in the day and just having a pretty good laugh over that. Yeah, he was off. He was he was a lot tougher than I will ever find myself being. That is for sure. And that's sort of the I, it, it, does that same vibe kind of play through because there's always those scenes in the different Rambo movie about what he's possibly surviving. And is that part of what we see here, too? Well, two confessions. We actually didn't have a chance to stream to uh, screen this ahead of time. So we had one of our reviewers saw it last night and we'll be posting the review later today. Yeah. So uh a, I haven't actually seen it, but B, do I need to have seen this movie to talk about it? I don't think so. <laughs> I think that's fair. It's Sylvester Stallone. It's human growth hormones. Okay, that's probably over the line. <laughs> it's uh, it's explosions and death. I saw one headline that says he, you know, he. I think he goes to Mexico and kills lots of people. So I mean, it it sounds like the 80s all over yeah. again just in a, in a different location so yeah i uh, can't imagine too much redeeming about the entire thing and i i don't think it's out of bounds to suggest some hgh might be at play with uh, sylvester well, stallone i am um, i a number of years ago i think it was when uh, rocky balboa came out i had a chance to meet him oh wow and i remember shaking his hand and thinking it was like shaking 
the hand of a side of beef. It was this huge, <laughs> huge meaty thing. I mean, he just he was exactly like you think he is. Sometimes when you meet people, you're like, oh, you're different than I thought. Other than not being very tall, he was. It looked like he was chiseled out of granite. He was huge. I yeah. mean, so anyway, but that doesn't matter for our purposes. But I shook his hand once, and it was an enormous hand. Yeah, it's so fascinating to watch him and Arnold Schwarzenegger as they've aged over the years and, and continue to play these roles in movies like Terminator and, and uh, now Last Blood. So don't know if I'll go see it, but uh, certainly of interest. I, I can say I am interested in Down Abbey and all the, of course, the, the qualifications of that apply and so what you just said about Friends. I'm not talking about it being a terribly redeeming show. It's some of the best script writing, frankly, that I've seen in a, in a streaming series of episodes like that. And, and now the movie's coming out. We are, my wife Hallie and I are currently watching, going back through it again with our two oldest kids 19 and 17 and it does give us a lot of really good fodder to talk about about yeah. um, you know morality and and sexuality and so many different things so i do really appreciate that i'm actually they're overseas right now and i'm streaming it with them watching with them through technology as they're watching it so tell us about the movie because it's been what two years since uh, the, uh, the, the show been, ended it's you know when you think about time in pop culture you need to take your estimate and double it it's actually been 4 years it has not it's been 4 years that is it's remarkable been 4 years i was surprised too yeah. so my my next confession is that uh i had never actually seen an episode of downtown abbey and i like to call it downtown abbey just to get <laughs> eye rolling responses from those who think i'm uneducated um but uh i saw the movie and it's is from everything i can tell from who, the people I've talked to, I think it's very representative of the show. So if you are a fan of the show, uh, there's not going to be anything too surprising here. If you, like me, were one of the four people who somehow managed to miss Downton Abbey in its entirety, uh, this is a show about British aristocrats who live in a huge castle-like manse. Uh, and some of them are you know, rich and in control and telling people what to do. And and then some of them are servants. They're you know the people serving the rich people, and it's this this whole constellation of relationships. And it's basically a soap opera. Uh, this time around, it's set in 1927, which is a few years later than the show was set. Um, and in the movie, the king and queen of England are coming to visit, and that throws everybody into a tizzy. Some people are excited. Some people are not excited. Uh, but there is plenty of drama to be had. If you've seen the show, you know what to expect. Um, one thing I wasn't expecting, which is uh, alluded to on the show, but I still found myself caught off guard, is that uh, there's one character who is um, who's gay, and we see him go off to kind of an underground gay speakeasy, mm. which I, I had my it had me wondering, was this a thing in 1927 England? Um, but um, you know, we see him kissing another man yeah. and. And and I was – I'm not sure what I was more shocked by, I, although I, I shouldn't be because it's just in everything now, the fact that that was there or the fact that this is a rated PG movie. Um, and I'm like, OK, I guess this is considered PG content these days. So again, it was just a reminder that even with something rated PG, uh, if you haven't done your homework, you could still get a pretty big surprise. Um, and I realize now that that was a, an ongoing part of the storyline. Um, but it, it plays a pretty big role in about the last third of the movie. Mm. 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that, too, because we were watching with our kids, and the very first episode of season one sort of had this scandalous scene in which, as you referenced, I don't know how uh, big homosexuality was in in early 20th century England, but in the, in one of the opening scenes, you do see a footman or one of the, the servants of the house uh, enter into a gay relationship with uh, one of sort of the lords or the barons that's visiting the manor, and it's really yeah. uncomfortable, but I, I will say this, uh, for my kids, again, at 19 and 17, this is the world in which they live, and it actually oh, gives yeah. us an opportunity to talk about with them. Absolutely, and and I will go on to say that you can't not have this talk with your kids, right. because not only is it in Downton Abbey, it's in everything. I mean, it's the rare show that doesn't have either a token or a main LGBTQ character these days, and more and more cartoons and animated shows and kids shows from Arthur to My Little Pony. I mean, I could just go down the list, um, you know, have some sort of gay character or gay storyline. And so you've got to figure out how to talk about it because the culture uh, has utterly and completely embraced it and uh, you can't avoid it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's there. You got to deal with it. And, and I'm you know, bravo to you for talking to your, you know, your older teens. But I think, you know, this is a conversation you've got to have, you know, with your little ones. We were watching Ellen's Game of Games the other night and there were yep. two contestants who were engaged and my my eight-year-old, you know, asked a question about it. So, I mean, it can pop up anywhere. Yeah, we absolutely, we had our youngest kids that are nine and, and 12 and 13, and we've had to start those conversations really early, even going to a church camp with some friends, and it was a church that was subscribing more to some of the GLBT support. They were just going with friends, they're not part of that church, but we had to then have the conversations as well. you you got to start early with it. And I don't know, Adam, it's a tricky thing with parents to try to figure out how to talk about these things in an effective way, but we're not going to escape it, that's for sure. That's the no. Adam Holtz of PluggedIn.com. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, let's uh, look a little bit at this interesting case of Felicity Huffman and how she went ahead and confessed, it seems like fully and unabashedly, to some of the college scandal that she participated in and accepted her sentence willingly and what we can learn from that. Twenty-one minutes past the top of the hour. I'm Peter Capster, filling in for Carmen LeBurge. We're chatting with Adam Holtz about different movies that are coming out, reviewing them, what to expect, but also some of the changing trends that we see represented in movies that uh, reflect what's going on in society as a whole. And Adam, uh, there is one more movie that we need to get to before we get into the Felicity Huffman conversation, and that is the return of Brad Pitt to the big screen and Ad Astra. Yeah. Sounds like he's chasing down a loved one again. It's a little bit of a contact interstellar kind of thing here. It is exactly that. It's Daddy Issues in Space, and if you've seen any of the still <laughs> photographs, it's clear that Brad Pitt is already angling for the Oscar of Most Pensive and Reflective Actor Award because he just <laughs> – every shot, he just looks deeply concerned about something. And uh, in this movie, he plays um, an astronaut whose dad was the most famous astronaut ever. His dad was sent on a trip uh, – an expedition to the outer edge of the solar system. Um, it was important, but they disappeared. And Brad Pitt was 16, his character, when it, when his dad disappeared. Now, 30 years later, there are these weird energy pulses coming from that region that are doing terrible things to Earth. And they think not only is his dad still alive, but for some reason maybe he's attacking Earth. And they send Brad Pitt after him and... Uh, space travel ensues, pensive thoughts ensue. Um, <laughs> it's yeah, it's, it's in the neighborhood of, of gravity and interstellar and, 
arrival and, and contact. I mean, it's this kind of really thoughtful, reflective sci-fi. There's a fair bit of action, too, and there's actually quite a bit of, of death that is almost at horror levels because mm. it's depicted pretty realistically. And so that might be a surprise to some folks. But it's not really an action movie. It's more of a Brad Pitt thinking about his dad. Daddy issues in space, you might call it. Hmm. Uh, It doesn't sound like a ringing endorsement at this point. Well, actually, I kind of like those kind of movies. I'm being a little bit mocking, but it's not just a popcorn muncher where people are blowing things up. It's it's this this guy pondering... Who am I? What's my identity? It's really a movie about identity. Um, so uh, it's a more thoughtful film, and uh, critics have been kind of divided on it. Some have thought it's great, and some have been like, yeah, this doesn't really work very well. Uh, it has a definite nod to 2001. That's the other movie that that's in play here as a, an inspiration. So in that vein of things, if you like sort of quiet, thoughtful, um, interesting, occasionally violent sci-fi, you know, this one might be worth considering, but not before you check out our full review at PluggedIn.com. Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, you wrote an interesting article on PluggedIn.com, too, just reflecting on how Felicity Huffman has responded to some of the allegations of corruption and the college scandal and, and pay-for-play tuition, all of that, and how even different that is than Lori Laughlin and how she's approached this. So kind of talk us through what happened here recently. It was pretty compelling. You know, it was pretty compelling. I was kind of blown away by her response to... Uh, the sentence she received, she's got to spend, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, 14 days in jail uh, for what she's done. And I think it was a $30,000 fine. And so often when celebrities end up being convicted of things like this, you know, we hear excuses, we hear denial, we hear this sort of, you know, it's been, it's a travesty of justice. This isn't what happened. And she did just the opposite. And I won't, um, read very much, but she said, I take full responsibility for my actions and making amends with my crime. I deserve whatever punishment you give me, she said to the judge. And then later she said, I accept the court's decision today without reservation. She goes on, she's apologetic. She asked for forgiveness for her family. Um, and, and I was really struck by her willingness to take responsibility. We live in a culture, I feel like, Peter, in which Nobody takes responsibility anymore. Right. Uh, and and so here we had somebody, okay, what she did was wrong. I think we can all agree on that. People are not agreeing on whether the punishment fit the crime. People feel like she got off really easily and that if a normal person did this, they'd go to jail for a lot longer. And there's probably some merit in that. But, but she owned it uh, and she apologized. She realized that it affected relationships and she wants to make amends. So it was a penitent attitude. And I think as Christians, you know, we too blow it. We make mistakes. We need to say, I'm sorry. Uh, I need to try this again. Will you please forgive me? So, um, yeah, I was pretty... um, I was pretty surprised in a good way by her response. Yeah, when I was reading through some of how you recorded her response, it, it made me think that this is the kind of thing when somebody authentically admits their wrongdoing, it, it creates space in the future. It takes some of the energy of accusation away. It, uh, it, it creates a possibility of hope somehow when there is this yeah. authentic ownership as opposed to a spin kind of ownership. I remember when Tiger Woods right. came to the press conference, and I can't discern entirely what was in his spirit, of course, but it kind of came off as somebody trying to save their career, which happens so often, it seems to me, in political or entertainment spheres, where people apologize for that reason. And this just had a different ring to it. No, it did. And I think, you know, it may seem ironic, but 
I think it's easier to give people a second chance when they just yeah. own it. Yeah, indeed. You know, instead of, you know, in comparison to the the Jesse Smollett thing. Yeah. I don't know what happened there, but he is still insisting that what was discovered was not what happened. You know, yeah. and I'm like, well, what's the truth here? I don't know that I, despite your, you know, your your protestations, man, here's what the cops said. Here's what <laughs> right. you say. And, and that's just one example. I don't mean to pick on him because there's a million of them out there. Of course. Um, but um, that's another one recently, yeah, obviously. Well, before I let you run, I, I would be remiss if I didn't at least ask you about rumors of a reboot, a reprisal of The Princess Bride. And I have to say, I, I, my gut <laughs> is I hope it doesn't happen. But what are you hearing in your circles? Well, apparently there were some conversations about this. Uh, and online, when that leaked out, <laughs> the response was, how should we say, Less than enthusiastic. <laughs> I believe that. And uh, Carrie Elwes basically said, uh, why would we uh, – there's no shirt – there's a shortage of perfect movies in this world. It would be a pity to damage this one, which obviously is a, you know, an echo of one of his lines as his character as Wesley in the movie. Um, so hopefully, hopefully, you know, saner minds will prevail. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. There's enough lines in that movie that are quotable more so than maybe any other movie I know. So we'll see what happens. But Adam, always great to chat with you again. If you're listening this morning, we really encourage you to head to PluggedIn.com and read all the various reviews. It really is empowering before you get into any kind of form of entertainment to know what to expect. So Adam, have a great weekend. We'll chat soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Peter. Yeah, we'll take a break here for some bottom of the hour news. And when we come back for the second half of this hour, we'll be joined by Sharon Miller, who wrote a book about uh, whether Christians are sometimes too nice. Boy, Paul, we're certainly circling in and out of a lot of different kinds of topics yeah, this yeah. morning. Anything from The Princess Bride, wondering if we should see that when it comes out, to once again a break point. We're back into Christians and support of government, as well as, you know, politicians do twist scripture for their own gain. I'm seeing it more and more, and it feels kind of like this pandering to a religious audience to try to gain their vote. You said it was a quotable movie, Princess Bride. It was indeed. A lot of the stuff is a few years ago. Inconceivable! That is, that is a perfect quote <laughs> for the morning for part of what we see here. Well, I'm really intrigued by what's going to come up next year after a short break, and that's where we're going to have a conversation with Sharon Hottie Miller about a new book about uh, Christians being nice and sort of the virtue of being nice. And maybe there's a deeper call uh, to, to a, a harder core reality of following Jesus in the world that can really bring a lot of courage and a deep sense of kindness and discipleship. So that'll be up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Years ago, I heard a man on the radio that I've been a fan of all my life. My good friend Chuck Swindoll said, I want three simple words in my gravestone. Dad was fun. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. I got to tell you, I was a little surprised. I thought Swindoll would prefer something profound like America's beloved preacher, maybe a testament to his spiritual depth for his amazing provision as a dad. And here's one of the most godly men I'd ever known talking about how he wanted to be remembered for his playfulness. Since then, I've come to realize that laughter is another form of worship. So take a page out of Chuck Swindoll's book. Have some fun. Loosen up a little. Tell a joke. Nothing will bring a quicker connection with your team than sharing a good laugh. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Check out his latest resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. I'm smelling coffee, birds are singing just outside. Here comes your mercy streaming in with the morning light. 
Paul Perot, that's some pretty uh, upbeat music here as we get ready to wrap up the show in our last segment. Yeah. Uh, welcoming Sharon Hadi Miller in just a moment. But where'd you come up with that one? Well, that's been on my rotation for a while. That huh? has, yeah. yeah, yeah. You've, been, you've been kind of uh, you know, upgrading well, some I've of the been, rotation songs. I've been putting a few things in. You mentioned yesterday. I did. I, I'm a, growing up, I was a big Alan Parson project. That's what I was fan, ask so you. There's yep. a few instrumental beds that I put in today. So. Well, it's, it's yeah. got me upbeat here as we're getting ready to head into the weekend. Yeah. And, of course, we're joined at this time by Sharon Hottie Miller, too, author of a new book called Nice. And, uh, Sharon, you actually... Uh, released to an uh, uh, excerpt of this on Christianity Today, Why Niceness Weakens Our Witness. And now I want to get into that with you here in just a moment. But it sounds like you were flying through Minnesota here recently and ran into a pretty big celebrity. Yes, I did. I sure did. I was flying. So it was actually, I flew through Minneapolis, but I was in the Spokane airport about to get on a plane to Minneapolis and I looked up and I saw a tall man and I realized it was Garrison Keillor. And I got to tell you, I texted my husband and it's, <laughs> it makes me laugh so hard. I texted in all caps, Garrison Keillor is here. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> I thought it was like Brad Pitt or something. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, but he, of course, he loved to talk about Minnesota Nice, something that this state is known for where we do our broadcasting out of St. Paul and his Prairie Home Companion. And in real life, was he Minnesota Nice? Was he was he a good kind of nice or the kind of nice you're talking about we shouldn't be here as, as Christians? Yeah, no, he was very, so I'm a writer, obviously, and he's a writer. He's an infinitely better writer than me. But yeah, he, he talked to me about writing and he was very kind and very thoughtful. So yeah, he was a, the good kind of nice. Oh, <laughs> he represented the state well. <laughs> that's brilliant. Well, anytime you got an all caps text that's going out, there is something of, of, of import to be sure. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Well, thanks for joining us. I'm curious on this book. I, I know it even had my attention yesterday as Paul and I were talking about prepping for today's show. And uh, you have a little tagline here underneath the Christianity of Today article that says, I can't follow Christ and also succeed at being nice. And I am really interested in what you have to say about this. I'm, I know it forms the heartbeat of your book as well. Yeah. So the the background of this book actually began in my first book. It's called Free of Me, Why Life is Better When It's Not About You. And in the first chapter of that book, I had this little paragraph where I was looking back on my childhood and noticing how I was this really good kid, this overachiever, you know, rule follower, all of that. And I would have said that I did all those things for Jesus. But in hindsight, I also noticed that it got me things. It was mm. really, it was really beneficial to me to be a good kid. It won me a lot of approval. And so I had just this little paragraph in that, that book where I said, you know, I could see how my motivations were really kind of muddy as a kid. Like, was I good because of Jesus or was I good because it was just really beneficial to me? And so I wrote that and I didn't expect to explore it anymore, but that idea continued to just haunt me because I realized I had not left it behind in childhood, that it had followed me into adulthood. And it had also followed me into ministry. And you mentioned this this off air, that this is something that is really challenging in ministry when you are called to say something that is hard or is true. And in those moments, you have to make a decision. Will I be faithful or will I be nice? And sometimes we just can't be both. And so I realized I've got to explore this more. Yeah, that moment that you referenced, it was a game changer for me. I know I was in my late 30 or late 20s and I was going out to lunch at an Italian restaurant with my supervising pastor. And I, and I can say that because what happened is still so burned into my memory. But I had been working under his supervision for the better part of a couple of years. And, 
he, in a very <laughs> gentle but also convicting way, said, you know what, Peter, uh, great potential, but I think you're far more concerned with being liked than you are with uh, leading. And, and boy, in any field, in any relationship, right, it, there is that temptation you described that if you're nice to people, you, you can almost do it for these motives that you're not always entirely sure that are going on, but you, you want to get something out of it. So you're nice to get something, not just because you're nice. Yeah. And, you know, that temptation to be nice is it's really tempting because, well, A, it does it it smooths over all of your relationships. You know, it keeps you from having to have those really hard conversations that you can avoid confrontation, that sort of a thing. But at the same time, niceness allows you to do that while looking very Christian, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. you can seem like this really great person. And so that is the the deceptiveness of it. And it is deceptive at the end of the day. We were just chatting in my relationships class that I teach here at the University of Northwestern St. Paul yesterday with young people. They're going through some curriculum on what it means to wear a social mask. And boy, we sure do wear yeah. those social masks, don't we, in terms of trying to evaluate the relational environment around us, figure out what's going to help us fit in, and then be nice according to whatever the rules of engagement are in the midst of that okay. social environment. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right, that that mask piece. And so what the challenge was for me in writing this book is I thought, okay, this niceness, it looks so much like the real thing. So how do we tell the difference? And Jesus uses this great metaphor where he says, you can know a tree by its fruit. Mm. And so the question I wanted to ask then was, okay, what are the fruit of niceness? And I discovered all these really bad (laughs) fruits. And one is one you just named, which is inauthenticity. You know, instead of being who we are, instead of expressing how we actually feel, what we really think, we are simply nice. But another one, and this this intersects with, with ministry, but it also does with relationships. Another bad fruit of niceness is cowardice, where instead of saying the hard thing, you know, the necessary thing, instead we simply choose to be nice. And so we're cowardly as a result. So it bears, you know, it, it looks so good, but it bears really, really bad fruit. Mm, talking with Sharon Hottie Miller about a new book uh, out called Nice, Why We Love to Be Liked and How God Calls Us to More. And Sharon, when we come back from a short break, we'd love to talk about then the contrast. And you've sort of referenced it already, but what kinds of things do get born in our life when we sort of drop the pretense of niceness and enter into a more rigorous form of discipleship and the kind of character that comes from that. So more to come here with Sharon Hottie Miller next on Mornings with Carmen. And I Little Minnesota Nice from Paul Perot. Always spot on with some of the Moper music there. Uh, Paul, we're talking with Sherry Hattie Miller this morning about a new book titled Nice and uh, some of the alternatives to sort of Christian niceness. And Sharon, during the break, I got a text from a friend of mine, a young person that I know in my life. And uh, the person wrote, the current segment is truly speaking to me this morning. And then he went on to write this, which I think captures it so much better than I could. He said, I so often find myself trying to be nice no matter what the cost, even if it means, uh, even if being nice means I am not being truly honest with myself and others. And boy, oh boy, can I resonate with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this plays out, it plays out in so many different ways. You know, I, I think the way I had to confront it first and foremost was in ministry, just 
those moments where I felt like God was prompting me to be faithful to his word. And I was afraid of what people would think, but you know, other really high stakes way this, this plays out is when you have, you know, maybe a family member where you've noticed that their drinking is getting a little, you know, out of control, or maybe you have a coworker and they're starting to get kind of flirtatious with another coworker who's married and, in those moments, you know, those are those are really high stakes situations where if you choose to be nice in that moment, it there's a high cost. Yeah. To that. So, yeah, it, this isn't just about, you know, don't be nice, you know, be kind. This is this is um, this matters a lot. Yeah. And I'm curious as we start thinking about this a little bit more clearly and we decide that we want to take some steps to maybe drop the pretense. I mean, we don't mm-hmm. want to become the kind of people that suddenly are just, I guess, how some people might describe brutally honest and just mm-hmm. say whatever. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about replacing that with just saying whatever's on your mind, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as I was thinking about the arc of this book, the first half, I look at these multiple bad fruits of niceness. And then initially I was going to have the second half be the fruit of the spirit. So it was going to be kind of a one-to-one, like, don't do this, do that kind of a thing. But the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, that is not how farmers grow fruit. Mm. You know, if, if a farmer has an apple tree that is bearing bad apples, he doesn't march out to the tree and shout at it stop bearing bad apples, bear good apples, you know, he diagnoses what is going on and then he cultivates a healthier tree. And I think that this is actually a huge gap in how a lot of us are doing discipleship and faith these days is we'll kind of identify something in our lives and say, I need to stop doing that. I need to do this instead. And we're missing a lot of steps in between. And that, and that's why it's called the fruit of the spirit is that it, it bears, it's produced out of you organically. And so what I decided to do in the second half of the book is look at, okay, how do we actually cultivate the kind of souls that bear a better fruit instead of simply saying, don't be nice, you know, be kind or don't be mean, be kind. You know, you're basically just kind of replacing one mask for another. And what we really need is to be changed from the inside out. Yeah, and I think you you just referenced it too. It really is, I think, uh, sometimes an, an underestimated and not talked about dimension of discipleship. And I remember a pastor really early in my life giving a sermon that has stuck with me to the day where he said, you know, a tree doesn't go out and try really hard to bear all the right fruit. And to your point, yeah. a tree, a, a, a good tree, says Jesus, bears good fruit. And so if you're abiding in the vine, the, the fruit uh-huh. naturally begins to come from that. It's not an overnight process, unfortunately, for so many of us. But, uh, but at the same time, that's really the key. You know, Sharon, I think about when Jesus is on the cross. And when he said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. I, I don't imagine there was a lot of pretense. I mean, I, I think often about what kind of heart he must have had to not be just sitting there saying, oh, these people are driving me nuts. I can't stand them. This is so unjust. But I guess I'll try to do the nice thing right now. Uh, something mm-hmm. flowed out of him that yes. was consistent with his interior world. And that's the kind of thing we're mm-hmm. talking about here, right? Bringing alignment with our interior world with our exterior behavior. Yes, yes, exactly. And it's really, God is so creative. What I discovered in writing this book, and I decided to really dig deeper into this agrarian metaphor, is to just look at, okay, well, how do farmers actually cultivate good fruit? 
And what I discovered is God, you know, he, he thinks of every little detail. And as I was looking at, okay, how do farmers do that? I discovered that God wrote these spiritual principles into his creation. And just to give you, gosh, I could, I don't know if we even have the time to go into it, but there, I learned so many things. You know, we talked about inauthenticity and, and one thing I discovered is how tomatoes, you know, those perfectly red round tomatoes yeah. that you can get at the store, they look perfect, but they don't taste very good because years and years ago, farmers figured out if we make these tomatoes look perfect, they're pleasing to the eye. They genetically engineered them to look that way. But at the same time, that gene, it flipped off the flavor gene. And so even though they look better, they taste worse. It degraded the taste. And that reminded me so much of niceness, how we use niceness to be pleasing, to be appealing. You know, we're, we're blandly appealing to everybody, yeah. you know, when you're nice. But it has this effect when you are inauthentic that way in order to be appealing. It, it kind of turns off the flavor gene of who God actually created you to be. And when I discovered that, I my mind just kind of exploded. <laughs> mm. well, but there's so many principles like that. There are, and it, it's right, it goes right to the heart of what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees, that you look great on the outside, you're like whitewashed uh-huh. tombs, but inside you're filled with the bones of dead men. And, and that describes another way to describe exactly what you're suggesting. And uh, Sharon, it's an important book. I, I just finished our, our conversation with reading one last quote from it related to what you said, is that Jesus doesn't need us to be nice. Instead, he promises that if we can ditch our nice tendencies and be honest about our brokenness, our hopes, our dreams, and all the ways we need him, there is life to be had, even life to the full. It's a brilliant book, uh, Sharon. Thanks for coming out with us. Where can, uh, oh, if people are listening you. today, where can they find a copy of it? Uh, you can get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere books are sold. Again, the title is Nice, Why We Love to Be Liked, and How God Calls Us to More. Thanks for joining us here this morning, Sharon. My pleasure. We'll wrap up our show here next on Mornings with Carmen for the 20th of September. Well, always a delight to be back in studio with all of you, Paul Perot. Great to be with you. A fun morning and you know, lots of different ground coverage from... Things like uh, just in our recent segment, tomatoes that do look good on the outside mm-hmm. but really don't taste good on the inside. And boy, is that a relevant analogy in so many walks of life. I was thinking uh, red delicious apples. Yeah, that's another <laughs> one, right? And, and there's nothing worse than grabbing a red delicious apple and then have it be all mushy on your first bite. Uh, it kind of yeah. takes away from the experience. But appreciate the time with all of you listening as well. It's uh, there's, there's just so much to be talked about and wondered about. It's such a tough place in which we find ourselves so often. But I hope one of the themes that ran through these last couple mornings is that we really are part of a kingdom that knows no end. And, and Paul, we were, you and I were talking off air that, yes, there's a dimension of the gospel that's important, that sin needed to be accounted for. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's, it's part of the heart of the gospel, what happened on Good Friday. But if we just reduce down our following of Jesus to Good Friday and don't take into account for Easter Sunday, we miss on what is truly the heart of the promise of the gospel is that we are part of a kingdom that knows no end. So whatever is going on in the kingdoms of this world at this time, mm-hmm. we are oriented and give our allegiance to a different kind of kingdom. I, I even take it out to Pentecost because we're not doing this alone. Absolutely. God's spirit lives within his people and yeah. living to learning to submit to him and live through him and 
as Sharon was talking, be authentic. Yeah, and, and to her point as well, when uh, as the Pentecost moment comes and the Spirit begins to indwell in our lives, there is fruit to be born, and it's not the fruit of the mushy apple. It's yeah. not the fruit of the bad tomato. It really is an authentic fruit where we really become not just people who act loving, but really are indeed loving from the inside out. And boy, you can tell the difference when somebody is acting loving versus a person who is actually loving for you. Exactly. Well, again, great to be with you. We'll wrap up our show here now for the weekend. And again, wherever you are, however you're listening through whatever medium it is, continue to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It is his kingdom that is the only kingdom that knows no end. We'll catch you again soon, everyone. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.